Welcome to Horizon here in the chapel. Y'all are looking lovely and handsome as always. And welcome online if you're joining us with a cup of coffee. Um, We are just glad you're here. And as the band just sang, um, what an invitation for us to open up our eyes and and look around in the world for places to find meaning and truth and um, areas that aren't always so obvious. And in this series, that's exactly what we've been trying to do. Uh, We've been looking at the fact that often the search for truth and meaning is sort of like an Easter egg hunt, you know, where it's there and sometimes even hidden in plain sight, um, but that God has often placed it with some uh, strategic intention um, for us to find later. And as an example of that, if you remember, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the Easter eggs on stage here. And you see them, the brightly colored, um, fun little Easter eggs. Well, today we're going to take it to the final and next level. Okay, we're behind me. We're going to flash up a screen of what the Easter eggs looked like last week. Okay, and they have been placed differently, I'm told, by Austin. So, Austin, you're 
Yep, he's on it. They've been placed differently today. So I want you to try to find the differences between last week and this week, perhaps. And maybe yell them out, point to them. I'm playing along for the first time as well right now, so. All right, so I see this purple one right here is new. I don't think that was there last week. Am I right? Am I right, Chad? Yeah, yeah. Let's look over here, see if we find any over here. Ooh, okay, what color was this egg last week? Any, anybody? Yellow, right? And last week, this egg was not cracked open, which it is cracked open now. Yeah. Oh, look over here. This is new, right? You see that last week? All right, let's try to find one more here, people. Okay, blue, green. What's that? Down here somewhere? Is that different? The pink one? The kid? Yeah. Yeah, I can't hear. I'm getting old, so... Um, <laughs> And I need reading glasses for the first time in life, so that's fun. Um, so, so it's fun to kind of find these hidden Easter eggs, right? Um, but also, if you're a fan of movies, this concept of an Easter egg um, is something that we've seen across the years, that a uh, film director will hide little tidbits in the movie for us to find. Um, and, and if you're a fan of Alfred Hitchcock, anybody into mysteries? Um, Alfred Hitchcock, in 39 of his movies... An Easter egg is that he hides himself, that somewhere in those movies, he's a cameo. He's a background actor that you have to spot out. And in one particular movie, he got super creative. It's a movie called Lifeboat, where there are only nine characters in the entire movie, and the entire movie takes place in a lifeboat. Um, and so it's hard to hide if you're Hitchcock, um, but he hides himself in a newspaper, that one of the uh, characters is reading a newspaper, and there's a tiny little picture of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and later, George Lucas picks up on this. So if you're a fan of the Star Wars um, movies, anybody Star Wars people? Um, anybody know what George Lucas hides in all of the Star Wars movies? I didn't know this. Um, in every movie, there is the number 1183, 1183 which is him paying tribute to his first movie that he created before he was famous, which is called THX 1183. Didn't even know it existed. Um, but that's a little Easter egg. And then over here, how many of you guys had young kids about 10 years ago? Anybody remember 2013 and watching a Frozen movie like a thousand times with one of your um, toddlers? I, I sure remember it. Um, well, in the Frozen movie, in a lot of the Disney movies, there are also Easter eggs. And in the Frozen movie, if you look closely, you'll see um, reminders of Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Hercules, and even Tangled. And it's fun to find these in the movies. And when we do, we experience a little moment of joy. That'll just stay there. Um, we feel this moment of joy, like, oh, I figured it out. Um, well, God in his wisdom has placed these same little Easter eggs in the Bible, um, and they all point to little um, points of his plan for our lives and our worlds, not just to bring us moments of joy, but a lifetime of joy as well.
today that is just obsessed with revelation and resurrection and, and life after death. In fact, as we looked last week, through our stories, through our movies, through our literature, all through religion is this longing, this hungering for proof that there is life after death. Bring me alive. And through our poetry is a longing that there's something in my soul and spirit that needs to be brought alive like that last song communicated. I need to be alive to patience and love and kindness and comfort. Yet often I know the right thing to do, but I can't get myself to do it. I find these dead spots in me. And long before Easter, when Jesus declares and shows himself to be raised... There were these hints God put in the Old Testament that this was the plan he was going to put in motion. And there's evidence of this plan. In fact, in the 1940s in Israel, they crawled up into this cave known as the Qumran Caves. I got a chance to visit there several years ago. And they found this old ancient scroll hidden as a clue inside of this cave. And in this cave... They actually found a scroll that was a copy of a copy of a scroll from 600 B.C. And we carbon dated this copy of a copy to be 200 B.C., hundreds of years before Jesus' plan and predictions. And in this is a promise from God from Ezekiel that he would one day bring about resurrection to all. He promises a new heart. You ever want a new heart? Here in this little scroll they found, it said that God is going to bring about a new heart, a new spirit, and make you alive. Let me show you the passage. It's in the book of Ezekiel. God says, I want to give you one heart, a new spirit, a new life, a clean conscience. Imagine you can know that your conscience is clean. You can have a brand new start. And you can know that when you die, God will, by evidence, raise you from the dead. This is the promise he gives at this ancient, ancient scroll hundreds of years in the past. Who doesn't want a new start and a new beginning and a new heart and a promise of eternal life? But to understand that promise, you need to understand the Bible has a very interesting paradigm for how we think about life. The Bible doesn't say we have a bad heart that needs to be good. If that was the case, just try harder. But you're saying, I have tried harder. 
The problem is not that I have a bad heart that needs to be good. It's I've got this dead heart that's got these dead spots that I can't energize that I need God's life power to bring resurrection to. My body needs to be raised one day. My soul and my spirit need to be raised today. So I was talking to a buddy who attends our church. I started attending about 20 years ago and was a skeptic toward Jesus, God, the Bible. Life is going very, very fine. I'm not sure I need any religion as a crutch in my life. A group of friends began to hang out with him, connect with him, build relationships with him, and he became interested. Like often of us do, right? We get interested in the things our friends are interested in. And these people called themselves Christians, but they didn't seem quite as loony as most of the Christians he knew. So he started to hang out with them and even got interested in the Bible a bit. This many years later, he calls himself a God follower, a Jesus follower, and he reads the Bible regularly. And he said he was reading the Bible recently, and he came across this passage that said that we have dead spots in our heart from the book of Romans. And because of that, don't be surprised when you see yourself being impatient or unkind or unloving. Those are those dead spots that God wants to breathe resurrection into. And he said, what struck me, Chad, is I realized if if that diagnosis is accurate, I've got these dead spots, I'm finding myself more and more open to have myself corrected because I'm thinking, you know what, if my wife points something out or my boss points something out or my kids even point something out, if this diagnosis is true, then there might be something in me that's broken. I need to not deflect, not to blame, not to rationalize, but maybe I need to embrace. This might be one of those dead spots that I need God to raise up. It's making me into a better husband, making me into a better leader. I'm becoming more humble, more teachable, and more self-aware. So that's this little clue that we find, 600 B.C., about what God's going to do. And it gets a diagnosis not only of our spiritual condition, but our physical condition as well. Let's think for a moment about what we know about the human body and anatomy. Most of us, when we think of the human anatomy, we think of 1500 A.D., Leonardo da Vinci does these incredible drawings of what the skeletal system looks like and what the heart looks like and what the body looks like. He was allowed by the church at the time to actually do some investigation of cadavers to really get a picture of the human body. He produced these incredible works. That's 1500 A.D. If you go back in time, anatomy was being taught as early as 300 B.C., by a philosopher in the Greek school of Asclepius, a man by the name of Herophilus, 300 B.C. Not nearly as advanced as Leonardo da Vinci, but an understanding of who we are and what makes us up from the inside out. Now we're going to jump back in time to something the Bible reveals 300 years before that. God's going to reveal the condition of our bodies and the solution we all need to a man named Ezekiel, but when now we're 580, 600 B.C. In this bizarre dream. So let me tell you the dream first, and we'll look for some clues. Ezekiel one day is standing before God, and he says, I want to give you a vision. Think of it like a dream. He says, in this dream, he's standing in this giant valley filled with skeleton bones. There's a foot bone there, and there's a leg bone there, and there's a skull over here, just filled with all of these bones. In fact, maybe your kids are growing up as a kid, you heard the song, the foot bone's connected to the ankle bone, ankle bone's connected to the foot bone. That song is about this story from the Bible. 
fact, the chorus of that song is, so hear the word of the Lord. It's on this story. So he's walking through this valley, kind of this spooky valley filled with all these dead bones. And as he's looking through it, God says, can you bring these bones to life? Ezekiel's like, I don't think so. He's like, why don't you speak to them, preach to them, prophesy to them? So he gives a little speech, and guess what? They're still dead. And that's the first Easter egg we find in our story, is that this skeleton army, they need life brought, not a sermon taught. The sermon doesn't do real well. So he's kind of looking at the bones, and God then in his dream begins to assemble the skeleton before him. The pieces come together, foot bone connected to the ankle bone, ankle bone, a whole thing goes together. Then God, right before his eyes, gives him a vision of how it all goes together. Little sinews connect the ligaments between the different parts. Then the muscles grow in front of him. And then the organs grow in front of him. Then he wraps the whole thing with skin. And now he has a cadaver here in front of him. And he says, all right, can you make it live now that I put it all together for you? No. Ezekiel's like, God, I don't know how to put life into something. Even when you give me all the parts. He says, well, how are we going to bring life to something that's dead? And in that, we see a second Easter egg, is that a skeleton army needs both God's construction, but also God's consciousness placed into us. Then there's a third Easter egg, is that God says that the four winds come from all around, and as these winds begin to breathe in, the very breath of God comes from heaven, breathes into the skeleton army, who's no longer a skeleton, they're now put together human beings that don't have consciousness, God breathes into them and they come to life. And suddenly Ezekiel sees that only God can bring life into things that are dead. And what we need is what the skeleton army needed. We need resurrection from above, not retrospection or introspection from within. That what you're looking for cannot be found inside of you. You need a source of compassion and strength and life that comes from outside. So these are these three little Easter eggs we're going to look together in this bizarre story that precedes and predicts the work of Jesus. And let's look at our first Easter egg. The first Easter egg is that we need life brought, not a sermon taught. That all through education philosophy, we're often taught today, if we just could just give people information and education and inspiration, they would do the right thing. But think about that, honestly. The last time you did something wrong, did you lack information? Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to be patient with my wife. Darn it. Thanks for reminding me. We do not lack information. We do not lack inspiration. We don't lack education. There's something deeper broken here. We need life brought, not some sermon taught. So Ezekiel, God speaks to him, says, the human condition is that we need life brought into us. He comes to a valley full, I mean full, of dead bones, dry bones. And they're not just dry, they are very dry. That's kind of like, they're not just dead, he's mostly dead. All right, you remember mostly dead for Princess Bride? Think it'll work? It'll take a miracle. No, they're not just mostly dead, they're like dead, dead. Fully dry, 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 dry. No marrow left kind of dead. And he's like... Can you make these dead bones animate? 
It's like, no, that, no sermon's going to accomplish that. I was talking to a buddy of mine. He and his wife were going through a real challenging time, and I only share this publicly because they share it publicly now all the time. A couple years ago, they approached me, and they said, Chad, or he did, and he said, our marriage is just, it's just really tough right now. And here's the, I'll never forget how he said it. He says, our marriage really needs a resurrection. He said, we have tried hard, but we just keep missing each other. There's no lack of effort going on, but we just can't seem to find each other again. So we have started to pray separately and occasionally together when we're not fighting. God, bring resurrection to our marriage. We met with another couple of the church, and we asked them to pray the same thing, that that where I lack compassion for my spouse, you would breathe new compassion in. Where I lack patience with my husband, you would give me new patience from above. So I checked in about three months, six months later, and I said, how's it going? He said, it has been amazing that new life is being formed in me. More life is being formed in her. I checked in another six months later, and they just talked about how their marriage is flourishing. They've gone from the, the winter season to the summer season, and they would say the reason is they ask God to breathe life into their relationship. So either you've got a good marriage, you want to be great, or a challenging marriage, you want to be healed, just try it. You've tried everything else. Ask God to breathe life into those dead spots in your life. We need life brought. Not a sermon taught. Imagine you're Ezekiel. God shows up and says, hey, look at all the skeleton army here. I want you to prophesy to those bones. Give a good talk. Persuade them, right? Imagine walking into a room full of cadavers, and you're like, do better. Try harder. Get up. It's better to get up, right? He'd say, well, that's all great, but we don't need a sermon taught that's not the problem of the human condition. We need life brought from above. And what's true in this bizarre dream and vision is what's true that Jesus will bring is that's why he comes not as an educator but as a savior who dies and raises himself from the dead because he knows that's what we need. Now, the second thing we need is we need God, God's construction. Like, where did all the pieces, parts come to put it together? God has to construct us and then God has to put consciousness into us. The same thing was needed then is the same thing needed now. God turns to Ezekiel and he says, hey, I want to put this whole thing together for you. That's what he does. Look what it says here in Ezekiel. Next slide. The Lord said to these bones, surely I will cause breath to go into you and you shall live. That which is dead can come alive again. I will put sinews or ligaments and things on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin. Now, this again is amazing. We know, we have data that this scroll precedes the Greek philosophers way before Jesus, way before Leonardo da Vinci. And yet we get an almost, almost animation occurring before Ezekiel, seeing all the bones fit together, seeing the muscles get on place, then the organs are formed within it, and then God covers it with flesh. The knowledge we have of an anatomy, this is 600 B.C. recorded, and we have a copy of it. And think about assembling something. To assemble a skeleton, one, you have to have the parts, right? The different bones. Then they had to be designed to fit to each other. Imagine your knee bone, your knee bone, and your, sorry, your leg bone and your leg bone connected with the knee bone, right? These things had to be designed to fit. God had to construct them 
Then he had to construct them to be assembled. Then he had to construct a pieces parts that would hold it all together. Maybe you're saying, yeah, we don't really need God because we got the Big Bang. But even that, imagine the, the-, the hypothesis of the Big Bang without God. Where did the energy come from to start the Big Bang? Because we know from the second law of thermodynamics that energy and matter can't be created or destroyed. Where did the laws, like the laws of inertia or gravity or strong nuclear force, come from to make all the things work that work? God had to construct the universe, give us the matter we needed, the energy we needed, the laws we needed. In the same way, he had to construct all the parts here that were needed to put this together. There's a doctor, maybe you saw him on TV growing up. He's uh, Tim Johnson. He wrote a book called Finding God in the Questions. And he said, as a scientist, as a doctor, as I begin to study the, the body's complexity from our ears to our eyes to our interdependent systems, the circulatory systems, the nervous systems, I just realized our very construction can point back to God. It would be like thinking that a tornado could go through a junkyard and assemble a 747. Well, Chad, given enough time, given enough time, you don't have the parts. You don't have plane parts in a car junkyard. Somebody had to design the parts, design them to work together for a particular purpose. So his journey was realizing God has constructed us. He has made us. And did you know your DNA and your chromosomes are incredibly complex? Scientists have studied and said that the code in your chromosomes it holds more information than all the computer programs ever written. Just six feet of DNA has a hundred trillion cells. And if that's not shocking enough, it contains all the precise assembly instructions for all the proteins, for all of the building blocks of your entire body. And God is revealing to Ezekiel here everything you need to know for how a heart is made and liver is made and ligaments are made and bones are made and how the flesh is made and skin is made. He's doing it right before him. And scientists have concluded that just the chance of one of those chromosomes acting on its own without being directed by a higher intelligence, just one of those chromosomes, the chance of it developing on its own is 1 to 10 in the 119,000th power chance. That's the width of our known solar system. If you zoom into the body, let's just take the, the bacteria, the little motor that we know is a bacteria. If you've ever zoomed into a bacteria, it operates like a very complex motor. You can see it's got a bushing, it rotates, it spins, it's got rods, it's got L-rings, it's got a hook. Just amazing, this little bacterial piece. This is a hair from a bacteria, and it's like a complex motor. And did you know that thing rotates at 100,000 RPMs while moving through the sludge like oatmeal in the body? And if that's not impressive enough, 100,000 RPMs, you can fit 8 million of those little motors in the cross-section of one human hair. That's a pretty impressive motor, especially when you compare it that a bacteria motor goes at 100,000 RPM, and a Lamborghini redlines at only 8,500 RPM. See, the more detailed you get about the human body, the more you find how incredibly complex and detailed God has constructed it. But now that God's done all the work, here it is. It's fully put together. You got everything you need. You got the parts. You got the organs. You got the pieces, parts. Is it alive? 
No. It still needs consciousness. That God must breathe consciousness and life into us. That's what he says to Ezekiel. He says, I'm going to breathe life into this body. I'm going to cause my breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put my breath in you. Twitch, for over the years, we've said, well, you know, really, you're just your brain, you're just chemicals, you're just the, the, the electrical impulses in your body. But there's been several studies to show the difference between your consciousness and your human brain is very different. The father of modern uh, neurosurgery, a guy named Wenfield, he did this really interesting study. He got some people in place, and he hooked little electrodes up to their brain. And he found the spot that would make their, their hand move, right? So he would just... Bzz, so this is the brain. Electrodes to the brain, psh, your hand moves. Bzz, hand moves. So then he told the, the folks in his study, I'm going to be moving your brain using electricity in your brain. I want you to stop your hand from moving. So the person would use their other hand to control their hand. And so here's this kind of this person arm wrestling with themselves bzz, 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 and the brain. So the brain, the, the actual part of your brain, the physical part of your brain, was moving the hand and the mind was controlling the other hand to push it back. And he began to see there's a difference between the human brain and the mind that inhabits that. See, we need God's consciousness. We're dependent upon it. Even Michael Ruse, a Darwinist philosopher, who's a very strong atheist, has said, we atheists have no explanation for where consciousness comes from. We just don't know. We don't even have a good hypothesis. Wired Magazine said, hey, we've been trying to create life in a lab for 53 years. You know how many times we've created life consciousness, brought the inorganic and the organic and bridged the gap between the two? Zero. The best we can ever do are left-handed amino acids, which is more like formaldehyde than the ones giving life, which are the right-handed ones. So everything going on here at 600 B.C. is God revealing that you need him. You need him for who you are, how you're put together, how you're constructed, and you need his life breathed into you. But that is the metaphor that he uses. That's what all of us hunger for and long for is life. But I think the third Easter egg is probably the most important, and that is the human mind, the human body, and the human soul we need a source of power for that life that doesn't come from looking within. A lot of religions and philosophies talk about just find the, the power within. But if you're really honest, haven't you tried that? And it worked. A lot of it worked. Well, then you're like, well, the, the dead spots I've run into, it isn't a lack of information or a lack of uh, introspection. It's a dead spot. I cannot get that part of my will or that part of my emotions to think right, to feel right, to want right. If you ever talk to someone who's been in AA, what's the first thing they'll say? You need to find a source, a power source, a God source outside of yourself to bring about victory in those habits that you've maybe stuck in. Right? You need a power source outside of yourself. And the skeleton army reveals to us that we need resurrection from above, outside of ourself, not retrospection or introspection from within. So God turns to Ezekiel and he says, all right, now that you get, you trying harder, working harder, uh, learning more is all good, but it's not going to solve the real problem. I'm going to now show you that I'm the source of everything you need. So there came a noise. 
Imagine sitting in this valley in this dream. You've seen all these, the head bones connected to the ankle, but all this stuff goes together. And then you see the whole thing composed, and now you get all these bodies laying there, all ready to go, but not alive. And then it says, a noise came, and suddenly a rattling of the bones. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them all, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So the Lord God said, come from the four winds, O breath, and breath on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood in this dream as an exceedingly great army. Now he's going to go on and give several applications to this. Number one, literally, the Messiah is going to one day come, be literally killed, and literally come back to life. Really? Which is why Jesus talks about it all the time. Secondly, he says, as a nation, this nation of Israel is going to be scattered in 70 AD, the Romans destroy the Israelites, and they get scattered all over the nation. And he goes on in the next chapter and says, but I'm going to bring all my people back together. And a nation that seemed dead and has no land and no people, I'm going to bring them back together, and I'm going to give them back a land. Well, skeptics rightfully laughed at the Bible for hundreds of years in Ezekiel. Because the idea that a nation that was destroyed, like Israel, is ever going to have a nation or land again was laughable. It's never happened in human history until 1948. Until 1948, God, just like Ezekiel prophesied, took a people that had been scattered all over the world and he brought them back together and breathed life into them and they got a new land and a new place. People can scratch their head and say, maybe there's something to this 600-year-old prophecy. That's why he goes on to say, this prophecy is about you and it's about Israel. These bones are Israel, the house of Israel, my people. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. But thus, thus says the Lord, behold, O my people, I'm going to open up your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel that you may know that I am the Lord when I have opened the graves. And, and, and here at 600 B.C., God says, here's how you'll know when the Messiah comes. He'll be the one who can open up graves. To which like, well, it must be a metaphor. Well, it's sometimes a metaphor, but he used it very specifically. You can know when graves literally get opened, that's me working. For 600 years, people wait. And then Jesus shows up. And here's this Jewish Messiah who loves the Old Testament, including Ezekiel. And it says that Jesus is constantly predicting his own death and resurrection. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and he would be killed. And they are scratching their head. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah is supposed to conquer the Romans, get rid of them. But Jesus keeps hinting at these little hidden, hidden Easter eggs from the Old Testament to say, no, no, no. No, 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 that's not my main purpose. My main purpose is death and resurrection. And they scratch their head. Like they believe that way at the end of time you get resurrected, but no one believed it could happen here and now. But Jesus keeps saying, look what he says. He goes on, he says, I will be raised on the third day. And it's your advantage. I'm then going to go away. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, my helper, to guide you in all truth. So we have up to seven if you count them all, but for sure four biographies written by different people about the life of Jesus. And all of them record from separate sources that God says that Jesus claimed that he was going to die and raise himself from the dead years in advance. 
and he kept pointing to these clues predicted hundreds of years earlier. And his goal was that you and I would have hope, that we'd have courage, that we'd know comfort, that we'd have access to the very source of God. Last week I mentioned the idea of God wants you to wake up to your dead spots. The Bible says that we are created as body, soul, and spirit, and all three are dying. It's easy to see it in your body, right? You've been to a funeral. You've said, wow, the, our bodies are falling apart. Our bodies are getting older. What is going to defeat the grim reaper, right? What's going to take on the grim reaper? Your good deeds? The amount of people you helped across the street? It doesn't defeat the grim reaper. We want someone who's had a track record of defeating death in history with evidence. I want to go with that person, that my body would one day be raised from the dead, so I can see grandma again. And I can have the hope that it's not the last time I'll see my wife or my son or my uncle or my mom. But it's not just about the future. It's also about right now, your soul, which is composed of what you want, your will, what you feel, your feelings, and what you think. That there are dead spots in your will, your thoughts, and your emotions. And God wants to breathe life into those that you can think true things, feel true things, and want the right things. The problem is you need an engine. And the Bible says the problem is that we got an engine of a dead spirit. And so he sends his Holy Spirit into us, just like he did in that bizarre vision or dream. He says if you invite him, his spirit comes inside you. It becomes the engine. And now that engine can bring to life new thoughts, bring to life new feelings, bring to life new wills and wants. So think about your life. I want you to identify just one area, a thought, a circumstance, a habit, Identify one area that you want and need resurrection, God's strength. Then number two, I'd like you to pray daily for resurrection. You've tried trying harder. <laughs> Ask daily for his resurrection. God, I need access to greater compassion, greater strength, greater generosity, greater love from my enemies, for the people I care about. And then third, when given a choice between my feeling saying one thing, my dead feeling saying this, and God's feeling saying that, trust his way over my way. The walk of growing as a Christian, the walk of becoming a Christian is always about faith. What do you believe? Are you going to trust God's way or your way? Are you going to trust your cadaver thoughts or your Holy Spirit thoughts, the Spirit given by him? This week... God wants you to have life, a new heart, a clean conscience, a new spirit, a new beginning. But having all those things begins by waking up to the dead spots in our life and beginning to depend on him. I'm going to invite the band to come out to this next song. This next song, you may have heard on the radio, it's actually about the story we just studied. As many of us walk through the the topography of our lives, there's a lot of stuff to celebrate. We may be walking through a valley, but it's a beautiful valley. It's got a beautiful car in the valley. We've got a great family and maybe a great marriage. Maybe things going on in the valley of our life are just fantastic. 
But I bet you if you look around your valley and all the things that are going well, there's a couple dead spots, a couple skeletons, a couple habits, a couple areas that need to come to life. So I want you to walk through the valley of your life and just begin to say, hey, God, there's one. Breathe life into that. God, there's one. Give me hope where there's only grief. Give me strength where I'm feeling fear. Through the eyes of man, it seems there's so much we have lost as we look down.
You know, in the Hebrew, the word for breathing, your very breath, just think about for a moment, you're breathing while you've been listening here today, right? That word for breath, the thing that sustains us, the thing that we need every moment, every minute of the day to survive, it's the same word used of God's spirit, pneumas, his Holy Spirit. In the same way we physically need breath to live, we spiritually need God's spirit to live. Maybe that last song moved you. That's exactly what I need. I need more of him, more of something besides me in here. That's why Jesus came. So let me lead you into prayer. Maybe you want to just pray the words of that song. Maybe you want to close your eyes if it helps you. If it doesn't, that's fine too. And just say, God, I need life breathed into me. Maybe some of you need the breath of forgiveness. You've been walking in guilt and shame. Say, God, breathe in your forgiveness because of what you did on that cross. And take it in. Maybe some, we've had success, but you want to breathe in something deeper, something more significant. Say, God, come into me, rule in me. Just take in some of his spirit. Maybe you want to mention a specific area of your life. Maybe you're struggling with depression. Say, God, I'm breathing in your hope, your courage. Maybe it's anxiety or fear. You say, God, I'm breathing in your hope and your strength. Father, for each person here, we just thank you that you are the courageous one, that you are the strong one, that you are the death-defeating one. And in Christ, we can know what resurrection looks like here and now and in the world to come. Thank you for your predictions and the evidence you gave that we may walk in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Well, like I said, these lessons Jesus applied, applied spiritually, psychologically, and physically. And we know there's many in the world right now who are facing literal death in Ukraine. And so last week we gathered together as a church and we began to put together these yellow bags to bring resources and and tools to people who are really struggling with life and death issues every day. And we have had an outpouring. In fact, I was just walking down the back hall, all the different uh, boxes we have ready to go and be packed up of all the way you responded And if you want to respond, be life givers who've received the life of God and help those who are facing literal death today, we just encourage you to grab a yellow bag. If you're watching online as part of our church family and community, we just invite you to check out uh, our website, www.horizoncc.com backslash Ukraine for ways we as a church can breathe life into those who need hope around the world. Thanks for being here. We'll join, join us next week as we continue our journey. And if you haven't got Easter tickets yet, we have six Easter services, Saturday and Sunday. We also have an opportunity for you to have what's called an extravaganza to bring your kids together to find eggs and have a lot of fun on our Saturday service as well. We look forward to seeing you and your friends. We'll see you all next week.